So in a, in a related uh, vein, I guess, um, I've posted under, um, so that Moodle is set up into, into different things, right? There's lectures and such and such. And under the um, heading midterm one, I've posted about 10 questions that came from previous midterms. So those are actually questions that have been asked in this course. Um, I thought of just posting a previous exam, but the course changes a lot. And some questions that were would have been on a previous exam would not be relevant. And so you'd probably be staring at it wondering, uh, am I missing something? Uh, the answer would be no. It's just that we, the course evolves. So the, court, the, the, like, the questions that you see on the Moodle are questions that I think are relevant to what we're covering and were previously asked. So this should give you kind of a flavor of, of what types of questions you can expect on the, on the actual midterm. Um, reminder that the midterm is next Thursday okay. for midterm one. The midterm covers today's lecture and this Thursday's lecture, but not next Tuesday's lecture. Next Tuesday's lecture is not on the midterm. So I'll try to remind you of that again. And I'll post on the Moodle and I'll cover in class things like what room we'll be in. So last class we covered hemoglobin. Uh, we talked about cooperativity and we talked about um, binding of oxygen to hemoglobin versus myoglobin. So this is basically what we got up to. Uh, just, just to show you that um, there are often many diseases, human diseases associated with uh, mutant hemoglobin. These are typically thought of as anemias, right? And anemia is a, is a disease where you've compromised ability to carry oxygen through the blood. So you can get a, a famous one is the single amino acid substitution. So E6V, so you should know your one letter amino acid code. So that's glutamic acid. So E6V means glutamic acid number six. That doesn't mean the sixth glutamic acid in the protein. That means the amino acid at position, that the amino acid at position six in hemoglobin is a, is a glutamic acid, an E. And the mutation is uh, glutamic acid six to valine in the beta chain, chain results in a hemoglobin that's not very soluble, precipitates out of solution, and it causes these strange shaped red blood cells, which they think look like sickles, right? So you know, you know what a sickle looks like. And so they call this sickle cell anemia. And so these people who are heterozygous for this mutation, they basically present as anemic. They have effectively low oxygen carrying capacity in their blood, and that comes with several um, challenges. Having said that, people who are heterozygotes for this allele are more resistant to, to malaria. And so you see in some places where malaria is endemic, a higher proportion of the population that would have this mutation simply because there's a competitive advantage, in theory, to having that in the context of places that, where there's a lot of malaria. Uh, homozygous people for this mutation are, it's lethal. So you don't see that. So these, these types of diseases called thalassemias where you have a uh, loss or a substantial reduction in one of the chains. This causes low levels of uh, hemoglobin, decreased production of red blood cells. And again, you get things like anemia, 
Um, you have diseases called alpha thalassemia. These are very severe. Uh, there's no alpha subunit, and you get four beta subunits. And the beta thalassemias, you get four alpha subunits that are insoluble, and they tend to aggregate. Okay. So that gets us into today's lecture. So we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk more about enzymes. Enzymes and enzyme kinetics. So burning sugar, right? Your body does this. And in theory, you could do this on the table of your, on your kitchen table. You take sucrose and you oxidize it in, in, with oxygen. That will give off carbon dioxide and water and energy. And this is a highly exergonic reaction. It's thermodynamically favored, right? So the question is, why doesn't this happen spontaneously? If you take sugar and you leave it on your kitchen table, you could wait a million years. And that sugar will never burst into flame, even though that's energetically favored. To give off the energy as energy and, and as a byproduct, produce carbon dioxide and water. So why doesn't that happen? Well, this gets back to something we talked about a little bit at the, in the first lecture of the course. right? So we have a lot of these kind of reaction coordinate plots. So you have free energy on the y-axis, and you have the reaction coordinate on the x-axis. The, the reaction coordinate is just basically the transition from substrate. It's basically trying to map out the transition from substrates S to products, P. Okay? It's going from left to right. So as a reaction goes on, as a reaction goes from substrates to products, you're moving from left to right on the x-axis. And then it's tracking the free energy state of those species on the y-axis. Right? So this is the ground state of your substrates, let's say your sugar. And this is the ground state of your products, say the carbon dioxide in the water. And you get a net negative change in Gibbs free energy, delta G. The delta G not prime is, is negative. So this is a reaction that should be favored. And so this is trying to emphasize for you the reason for which uh, the reaction doesn't happen spontaneously. The reality is, to go from substrates to products, you've got this transition state, which is highly energetically unfavorable. So that means to break the bonds, in, our, in the example we're covering, to break the bonds in sucrose to make carbon dioxide and water, uh, you have to twist the sugar molecule into certain conformations that the sugar molecule really doesn't want to do. And so it takes a lot of energy to do that. And you get this kind of this idea of this transition, transition state. It's a, it's a confirmation of the molecule that's kind of in between the substrates and products that's very difficult to attain spontaneously. And so we talk about this, conte this context of the activation energy, right? That's this delta G with this kind of funny symbol on it. Um, this is the delta G. This is the activation energy for going from substrates to products, right? This is the change in free energy from the ground state of the substrates to the energy of the transition state. And then you have this delta G going, you know, chemical reactions are reversible, right? So in theory, you could go from products back to substrates. And you've got this delta G with this funny symbol. Uh, this is the activation energy of going from products to substrates, right? And so even though the delta G of the reaction, the net delta G of the reaction is favorable, it's negative, you don't really get much transition between substrates and products because the likelihood that the molecule of substrate will twist itself into the transition state is very, very low. Okay? Now, what enzymes do, and this is what we're going to be talking about today, 
is that they basically lower this transition state. You could have uh, non-enzymatic catalysts. So enzymes are effectively catalysts. They're, they're molecules that lower the transition state, but enzymes are organic catalysts, right? They're molecules that are generated in a living system. And then you have non-biological catalysts, like metal ions, right? So, uh, for example, a famous example is hydrogen peroxide. This, you know, at a certain rate will break down into water and oxygen. But if you have a metal in that reaction, such as uh, Fe3, then that will, or an enzyme like catalase, that will substantially accelerate the rate of that reaction just because it's capable of binding to the H2O2, the hydrogen peroxide, and helping it attain chemically the conformation it needs to be able to break down into products. Okay? And that's what enzymes or catalysts do. They don't change the, the net free energy of the reaction. They just lower this transi transition state energy such that now the likelihood of moving from substrates to products goes way up. Okay? So that's, this is basically what I was saying. We have enzymes that permit reactions with very slow rates to occur on much quicker timescales. And this is basically what happens in a living system. Why, is living, why are living systems special? Right? Why is a body much more exciting or a cell much more exciting than, I don't know, a rock? Well, there are things, there are chemical reactions that are happening in a, in a living system that would not, they don't violate the laws of thermodynamics. That's impossible. But they allow for chemical rates of reactions to occur on physiologically relevant timescales that, in the absence of a living system, would take decades or hundreds of years to happen. And so, basically, it's, life is basically chemistry enhanced or chemistry catalyzed, right? There are a lot of other properties of enzymes that separate them from inorganic catalysts like metal ions, right? So they're chemical, they're catalysts, but they have properties beyond uh, those that would, you'd expect from a typical chemical uh, catalyst. They're much more efficient. So whereas a, um, whereas a metal ion catalyst may enhance a chemical reaction a thousandfold, it's not unusual to find a an enzyme, a biological enzyme, enhancing a reaction a millionfold, right? So they're better. Um, they're highly specific and often stereospecific. So we talked about chirality in lecture one. We talked about how you have D sugars and L amino acids. In theory, if you were making arginine in a flask, right, you would get both the D species and the L species, right? Because um, when you synthesize something chemically and you're making new bonds around carbons, you don't necessarily know which way new bonds are going to be made, right? So you're going to get this mix of the different chiral conformers. But in living systems, we know we only get L-amino acids and we only get D-sugars. And that's because the enzymes that make those things, they're stereospecific. When they're making a sugar, they add new bonds only from one particular orientation, for example. And so you don't get D-amino acids in, in a living system. You only get L. And the interesting thing that's very cool is that they operate at physiological temperatures and physiological pH, right? A lot of chemical reactions, like the one that we, if I recall correctly, the one that we covered in lecture one, the Wohler synthesis of urea, 
I mean, that's great that you can create a, chem create a chemical reaction to make urea that hadn't been done before. But some chemical reactions, they occur at 400 degrees Celsius under, and other ones will occur under, you know, 200 atmospheres of pressure. These are not, these are not conditions that occur in systems that are conducive to living, right? The really cool thing about enzymes is that they're able to get chemical reactions that happen in flasks or in the lab, chemical reactions that are very difficult to get going, very challenging. And somehow they're capable of getting them to go at 37 degrees Celsius at a pH of 7. Okay? So here's a table that's from your textbook that also basically uh, summarizes some other key characteristics of enzymes. Uh, obviously, they increase reaction rates. They still obey the laws of thermodynamics. And so going back to this slide here, the at equilibrium, okay, and we're going to cover this in the next, in, over the course of the class, at equilibrium, the abundance of P and the abundance of S at equilibrium, once they've reached equilibrium, how much P you have in the reaction and how much S you have in the reaction is going to be proportional to the difference in the free energy state between the substrates and the products, okay? So if this delta G not prime is zero, basically this ground state of the substrate and the ground state of the products is exactly the same, then at equilibrium you're going to have a 50-50 mix of both of them, right? Because each of them are equally happy. Whereas if the ground state of the products is a little bit lower than the ground state of the sub substrates, then at equilibrium you're going to have more products than substrates, and the amount you have more is going to be proportional to this difference. And what I'm saying on the next slide is that enzymes don't change this difference. And that's what we're getting at with respect to the transition state. So the amount of the substrates and products at equilibrium is not going to change by virtue of having an enzyme catalyze the reaction. It's just going to increase the rate at which you transition between the substrates and the products. Okay. So there's no effect on the equilibrium values. They obey the laws of thermodynamics. They're not out of... Star Trek. Uh, they catalyze both the forward and backwards reactions. Okay. They're typically present in very low concentrations, so the amount of the substrate that you have in the cell will be off, usually much, much higher than the amount of the enzyme because this enzyme's not consumed. It's very effective at taking the substrate, converting it to products. This enzyme sticks around. It's not consumed in the reaction, and it can go right to the next substrate and keep going. So you may have, you know a thousand-fold or a million-fold more substrate in the cell than you have enzyme that converts it to product. Uh, this is at the heart of basically the majority of research that's happening in living systems. Enzymes are controlled via regulatory mechanisms. Is it exciting that an enzyme converts A to B? Yeah, sure. Well, what if I were to tell you that the ability of an enzyme to convert A to B is controlled by whether you just ate, or whether you're in the light, or whether you're in the dark, or whether you slept last night, or whether you've acquired a mutation that might predispose you to cancer or something like that. So the ability of enzymes to be controlled, basically to be turned on and turned off. So a, a uh, an inorganic chemical catalyst like platinum, you can't really turn it on or off. But enzymes you can turn on and turn off via um, mechanisms that you're going to cover over the course of this class and, and subsequent classes. Yeah? Um, 
sorry, what being turned on? Genes, yes. Well, so the question is, when we're talking about regulatory mechanisms, is that having to do with genes being turned on and off? In a fashion, certainly. I mean, you can have enzyme A, which is on when it's free, and off when another protein that comes from another gene, B, binds to it and, and basically turns it off, right? So A may be, A may, and we're going to cover a job, we're going to cover an, an, an enzyme like this. So, um, I mean, there's many, I don't want to simplify too much. There are many ways to turn enzymes on and off. And one way could be that it binds another protein that comes from another gene which turns it on or off. Often what people think of is that an enzyme will be either on or off depending on whether or not the enzyme's been modified by another protein that comes from another gene. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, these are all kind of, I mean, depending on which enzyme or protein you're talking about, it's all going to have its own, so, so, are you talking about basically like a histone? Yeah, okay, so, so a histone that is, yeah, histones are proteins and it's not really clear that they're enzymes because they're not necessarily doing a catalytic reaction, they're basically, you've got DNA that's wrapped around them and the extent to which the DNA is wrapped around it will depend on whether or not the histone's been modified or not. So in a fashion, yeah, exactly what you're saying, but it's not exactly what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to get at, you know, an enzyme that converts substrate to product, and that's done by enzyme X, and normally enzyme X is on and will convert substrate to product. But then some other protein Y could come along and phosphorylate enzyme X, and we're going to talk about enzymes like this in this course, and now enzyme X is off. It's not going to do that anymore. So they're very complex. I think what you're talking about is something that's a little more, com I just want to try to get this general concept across, and then we'll scaffold other more complex things on top of that later. Um, and this is an important concept, and we're going to cover an enzyme that does this in this class. And that is, so we talked about how the challenge of moving substrates to products is acquiring this transition state, right? The, molecule of interest in the substrate doesn't necessarily like to take this shape, or it's energetically unfavored. Well, what a lot of enzymes do is they have an active site where the active site is kind of the mirror image of the transition state. And so by, the, by binding the substrate in the active site of the enzyme, the act of binding the substrate twists it into the transition state. And so as a result, the likelihood of acquiring this transition state goes way, way up. So you have this kind of statement here, the transition state of the substrates, uh, transition state of reacting substrates bound in, and I'm not even sure how that's a sentence. The idea is that basically the active site of the enzyme mimics the transition state. Okay. Some enzymes need cofactors, uh, like metals. Some, complex uh, some need complex organic molecules called coenzymes. If they're very tightly bound, the, you might call that a prosthetic group. And if you don't have a, if you have protein without the coenzyme, uh, we, instead of, a, a, an enzyme that has everything it needs to function, we call that a holoenzyme, and an enzyme that's missing something that needs to work, like a prosthetic group, we call that the apoenzyme. So if I'm talking about the apoenzyme, it's not functional because it's missing something. A lot of enzymes don't need a, a cofactor or a prosthetic group. They just work on their own. 
but we kind of covered, we're going to cover many enzymes that require cofactors, especially in section three of the course. Okay, so we're going to get now into enzyme kinetics, right? Kinetics is like any, kinetics should always make you think of time, all right? So this is a description of enzymatic reactions over time. What happens? Okay. This field started uh, in the early 20th century when Adrian Brown described this reaction, which is catalyzed by, in yeast by the enzyme beta-fructofuranocytase. At that point, they, didn't really, they hadn't really purified the enzyme yet. They didn't really even know what protein enzymes were. But he made a very critical observation, which was the initial rate of the reaction, this reaction breaking down sucrose into glucose and fructose, the initial rate of the reaction increased the more sucrose that was added, but only up to a point. Okay? At that point, the enzyme became saturated with respect to the sucrose. Okay? And so that makes sense if you think about it. There's an enzyme that's present in the yeast extract that is catalyzing sucrose into fructose and, and glucose. Okay? And the rate at this reaction, that this reaction goes is going to be proportional to how fast the enzyme can go, right? If I'm converting, I don't know, uh, unmarked exams into marked exams, the rate at which I do that is going to be proportional to my ability to do that. But it's also going to be proportional to my ability, let's say I'm blind and there's a pile of unmarked exams here, how many unmarked exams are there, right? If there's only a couple, and I have to reach around on the table to find one, well, that's going to mean I'm going to mark exams more slowly than if I've got this enormous pile that goes up, up to here, and every time I just reach out, I grab one. Right? Then, then the rate at which I mark exams is only going to be proportional to the rate at which I can do it. Right? And so that's basically shown here. Okay? This is the initial velocity of the reaction. Okay? And this is what we call, so this is basically, it's a speed limit of enzymes, right? How many units of substrate are converted to product? So for a particular enzyme, it might be 100 millimoles an hour. That's as fast as it can go. And the, fast, the fastest an enzyme can go, we call that the Vmax, right? And as you can see, as, so this is the initial, we always talk about the initial velocity of the reaction. Why do we always talk about the initial velocity of the reaction? Well, it's the velocity of the reaction before, you can imagine that, you know, again, I've got this pile of exams, and I'm reaching over and I'm grabbing them and marking them. Well, after an hour, then the pile of exams might be a bit lower than it was when I started, and now I'm going to slow down because, not because I'm slower at marking exams, but because there's fewer exams there now, and I'm going to reach over and grab an exam, and it's, there's just not going to be as many there. So we're interested in the initial velocity of the reaction, the, the reaction velocity before the substrate concentration has, been drop, has dropped, right? So that's where we always plot on the, on the y-axis initial velocity. And what you can see is that as we increase the substrate concentration, the amount of sucrose or the number of exams, then the rate at which the reaction goes up uh, increases, right? And there's this theoretical maximum. This is what we call at saturating concentration of sucrose, at some point the enzyme just can't go any faster because it's going as fast as it can. And it's basically, uh, it grabs the sucrose the moment it has finished converting the last sucrose into products. And so we basically define some terms here to be able to do math 
on enzymes to be able to describe how enzymes work. So the initial velocity we call V naught, right? V with a little subscript zero here, and a typical coordinate or a typical rate or unit is micromoles per minute. So that's concentration per minute. So it's basically a speed. It's like speed. It's like kilometers per hour. This is converted per minute. The substrate concentration is in the units of concentration, so molar, molarity. Okay. And so you've got this Vmax. That's as fast as it can go. There's half Vmax, so that's a very useful term. That's basically between zero and the Vmax. We take the half of the Vmax, that's the half Vmax. And then there's this very important constant called the Km, which we're going to talk about in a second. So this kind of gets a little bit to what I was talking about in terms of um, this link between how fast it can go and, and the substrate concentration. So in 1913, these two fellows, Michaelis and Menton, proposed a theory to explain this. Uh, if we define the enzyme substrate complex as using this equation, okay? So there's the uh, enzyme, there's the substrate, and then the enzyme and the substrate bind each other and form the enzyme substrate complex. The amounts of these at equilibrium is going to, like the, the abundance of this compared to the abundance of these, is going to depend on the rate at which E and S form ES, as well as the rate at which ES breaks down into E plus S. Okay? So we, fall, we call the rate of formation K1, and the reverse reaction we call K minus 1. Okay? And K1 and K minus 1 are rate constants. Okay? So these describe the speed at which the reaction takes place. Don't get confused between big K, uppercase K is always an equilibrium constant, right? Lowercase Ks are rates, so speeds of something, okay? So K1, the formation of enzyme and substrate to enzyme substrate, it'll depend on, number one, how quickly uh, E and S bind each other, as well as how much S there is. So this is basically the rate at which you know, I, let's say that me grading an exam is the enzyme substrate complex, right? The rate at which the enzyme substrate complex forms is going to be proportional to my, the rate at which I grab for an exam and how much exam there is, right? So because it depends on two things, we call this a second order rate constant, okay? And its units are per mole, sorry, molarity to the minus one, uh, times seconds to the minus one. That is how much substrate there is, which is in molar, and how fast it can go, how fast you can reach out and, and grab the substrate. And then the reverse reaction is the breakdown of ES. So, you know, ES doesn't always go to products, right? Like all chemical reactions, they're reversible. So sometimes ES won't go into enzyme and product this way. It'll break back down into enzyme and substrate, right? The breakdown of ES back into enzyme and substrate is going to be described by this constant K minus 1. This only depends on the speed at which it can do it, right? There's no, there's no finding S component to this. It doesn't matter. The concentration of S doesn't matter because it's already bound, right? If two people are trying to find one another in a big room, right, the rate at which they find one another 
is going to be proportional to, I guess, their ability to find one another and the size of the room, right? The bigger the room, the lower the concentration of them, and the harder it is to find each other. Uh, whereas if it's a very small room, then they're going to be more concentrated in that room, and it's going to be easier for them to find one another. And then there's also the component of, okay, are they very good at finding one another or not very good at finding one another? So finding, finding substrate is a second-order rate constant. But coming apart, once you've already come together, is first order. There's no finding when you're already together, right? It's just going to be proportional to the rate at which you come apart. So uh, to basically go back to here, E doesn't have to find an S. It's already bound to S. So this is a, what we call a first order race constant. And its units are only per second. There's no per molar, right? Because there's no concentration component. This is already a preformed complex. <clears throat> so the reason that, getting back a few slides, the reason that the reaction saturates is that in the catalytic reaction, there's the formation of the enzyme substrate complex, ES, whose amount will be dependent on the amount of enzyme and substrate. Okay? So you can imagine that, uh, basically, as the amount of S goes up and up and up and up, you're basically pushing the reaction towards the formation of ES until adding more substrate doesn't make a difference anymore, right? The enzyme is already moving as fast as it can, which is only proportional to the rate at which it converts. Now, this is the more complete reaction that I alluded to on the last slide. The formation and the breakdown of the enzyme substrate complex, assuming a large excess of substrate, can be summarized by, by this. So when the enzyme substrate complex forms, it can either go back the way it came, back into ENS, or the enzyme can convert the substrate to product, and at that point, the enzyme breaks down into E plus product. So you've got this other react, uh, rate constant, K2. Okay. Is that going to be a first-order constant or a second-order rate constant? First, right. E and S are already bound. So it's only a matter of how fast E and S can, can do this conversion. But remember, there's kind of a competition between K2 and K minus 1 for what's actually going to happen. If K minus 1 is much, more, is much faster than K2, then the majority of ENS is going to break back down into enzyme and substrate. Whereas if an enzyme is a super ninja at converting ENS into product, then it's going to go more this way than back this way. Okay? And then you also have, in theory, all enzymes and products can, all enzymatic reactions go both ways. So ENP could break could reform and reform ENS, which would be completely non-productive, but in theory it'll happen, right? Typically, the slowest step in this scheme is ES into products, this, this breakdown. That is K2, okay? Thus, the bottleneck, or the rate-limiting element of the reaction is the amount of ES. However much ES you have is going to basically describe how fast it's going to go, because this is what is the slowest, this is the slowest step, K2. <clears throat> At pre-saturation levels, the rate of the reaction is proportional to S, right? The more S you add, the faster the reaction is going to go. This is going to determine, the amount of S is going to determine how much ES you have, and the amount of ES that you have is going to determine how much products you make. At saturating levels of S, that is where basically all of the E is in the ES form, because the moment E converts E to P, it immediately finds another S, the rate of the reaction becomes insensitive to further S, 
and the velocity reaction is maximized, which is just a description of what I showed you a few slides ago. Basically, you get to a point where you add so much S where the reaction can't go any faster. So Michaelis and Menton derived this equation to, describe, to, to explain this behavior. Okay? The initial rate of the reaction is proportional to the maximum rate the reaction can go, the substrate concentration, as well as the substrate concentration, divided by the Km plus the substrate concentration, where Km equals this, and we're going to talk about that. Okay, so V0 is the initial velocity, Vmax is the maximum velocity, Km is the Michaelis constant. It describes the relationship between the substrate concentration and the reaction rate. And we're going to talk about what this means in the next few slides. And so you'll get a better feel of what Km is. But it's important to bear in mind that for every enzyme you talk about, just like every weak acid has a pKa that's unique and specific and doesn't change for that, amino for that weak acid, every enzyme you would talk about has a defined Vmax and a defined Km. And if you know those numbers, then you can do some math to figure out how fast your enzyme's going to go at a particular substrate concentration. Yeah? Is this related to steady state equilibrium? Um, I mean, in a fashion, the, 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 these numbers don't change. So depending on the amount of substrate or product you have, um, no, the best answer to that is no. Um, at steady state, at equilibrium, the amount of substrates and products is going to be proportional only to the delta G between the ground state energy of the substrates and the products. The enzyme doesn't influence that. So if, you, if, the, if the reaction does come to equilibrium, if the reaction, let's, let's put it this way. If the reaction is at equilibrium and you add the enzyme, nothing's going to change. All that's going to happen is substrates and products are going to go back and forth between each other more quickly. But the amount of substrate and the amount of product isn't going to, isn't going to change. So I guess the best answer to that is no. What we're describing is the conversion of substrates to products. And for a reaction that's not yet at equilibrium, how fast do you now move from substrates to products to get equilibrium? OK, so we, I want to talk a little bit about this constant Km, because it's a bit mysterious. And, and I think V and Vmax is relatively straightforward, but Km is a little bit fuzzy right now. So let's talk a little bit more about that. I want to talk about its units, okay? and how can we get a feel for what Km is. Okay. So let's do a bit of math, okay? or theoretical math. So the unit for Km is the same as the unit for substrate concentration, which is molar. Okay? So because the unit for Km is the same as the unit for substrate concentration, let's play a game. We're going to set Km to be the substrate. Let's say the substrate concentration is the Km. For a particular enzyme, the Km is 50 micromolar. What does this equation look like if we set the substrate concentration to 50 micromolar? The point only is that Km equals substrate concentration. Well, we swap out. This is our original equation. And we swap out Km, and we just put in another S. Well, then this becomes V0 equals Vmax times S over 2S. S plus S is 2S. We cancel out some S's. And V0 is Vmax over 2. Okay? So this is our very first very useful definition for Km. Okay? 
The cam, whoa, the cam is, is, by definition, the substrate concentration at half Vmax. Okay, so we talked about Vmax, that's as fast as the, and this goes back to this slide way back here. This is Vmax, that's as fast as the enzyme can go, and then you're adding different amounts of substrate concentration to get it up to Vmax. It never, in theory, quite gets there, but asymptotically this will eventually approach Vmax. The substrate concentration you need to add to get the enzyme to half Vmax is the KM. Okay? So the KM is however fast, however much you need to add of substrate to get to half Vmax, that's by definition the KM. I could have just gone to the next slide. So the KM equals the substrate concentration at, at this point. Alright? So is CAM kind of a description of the affinity of the enzyme for the substrate, right? It's basically a, an attempt to talk about how much this enzyme wants to grab onto the substrate. C kind of, but not really, okay? So let's uh, go back to kind of what we were talking about before with respect to these rate constants. Let's consider this simple dissociation. You've got the enzyme-substrate complex which breaks down into E plus S, right? We talked about this being a first-order rate constant, right? If we wanted to measure the affinity of the enzyme-substrate complex for E and S, this is the same reaction that I drew before, but I just drew it backwards. Instead of E plus S becoming ES, I've drawn ES breaking down into E plus S, okay? If I wanted to measure this as an equilibrium reaction, I'd draw it this way, right? And you can draw it the other way if you want. You just have to change your units. So in this case, if we wanted to measure affinity, we would define this equilibrium constant. So this is an equilibrium constant, uppercase K, and we call this the KD, because it's a specifically a K, it's an equilibrium constant that's describing the dissociation. So KD dissociation is, this is the dissociation reaction, ES breaking down, dissociating into E plus S. This is the product, so we put that in the numerator, and this is the, um, substrate, so we put that in the denominator, and we get this equilibrium reaction. E times S over ES. Someone said the word question. What's that? Oh, you, bless you. Oh, bless you. Um, the concentrations of E and S and ES are, so we would, we would define this, you know, just in first year chemistry as kind of the as an equilibrium reaction that's proportional to the amounts of these at equilibrium, right? It's also proportional to the rates at which they interchange, and we talked about this already, right? We talked about this K minus one and K one. The relationship, the, 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 the difference in these numbers is also going to be, uh, is also gonna describe the amounts of these at equilibrium, right? So you can imagine that if E S breaking down into E plus S is super fast, and the formation of E plus S into ES K1 is super slow, then at equilibrium you're going to have a lot more of this than you're going to have of this, right? And so you can also describe KD as a relationship of these rates, okay? We can also define KD as the K minus 1 rate divided by the K1 rate. We often substitute the terms, when we're talking about KD, instead of K minus 1, right, this is 
the K minus 1 is the dissociation of ES into ES. That's the rate at which substrate gets off of E, right? On the other hand, K1 is the rate at which S gets on to E. So we often swap out these terms. K minus 1 becomes K off, and K1 becomes K on, all right? So a few slides ago, I talked about uh, this definition of what Km is, right? So if Km is K minus 1 plus K2 over K1, and KD, KD is the classic measure of affinity, right? How tightly X binds Y, right? And that's basically going back, back to this. KD is proportional to these rates, and so if ES has a very, very high, if E has a crazy high affinity for S, then the breakdown rate is going to be very slow, and the formation rate is going to be very fast. This is basically, KD becomes a description of affinity, how badly E and S want to get together, right? So this is our classic definition of affinity, right? KD. KM looks a bit like KD. It's K minus 1 plus K2 over K1, and we defined this a few slides ago. So if this is the definition of affinity, and this is the definition of KM, the question is, is KM a measure of affinity? Is it basically a term that describes how badly the enzyme wants to bind substrate? By definition, no. Okay? No. This is the definition of affinity, KD. And this is different from KD, right? But I remember I told you that the slowest rate in enzymatic reactions is K2, okay? So if the rate of product formation, K2, is a lot slower than K minus 1, which, as we said, it often is, well, can we cheat a bit and, like, drop K2 from this equation? Well, people often do. Uh, so by definition, Km is not a measure of affinity, but practically, it kind of is, right? Because K2 is the slowest term in our reaction, we can kind of cross it out a little bit, pretend it's not there. And then Km effectively reduces to K minus 1 over K1. And it effectively becomes a measure of affinity. Okay? So when you're thinking of, okay, what is Km? I don't really have an understanding of what Km. Km is kind of the other term that's describing how that enzyme's going to work. How fast the enzyme's going to go is going to be proportional to uh, the rate at which it can convert, it can chemically convert. Let's say it's saturated. It's, it's already bound a substrate. The rate at which the enzyme goes is going to be proportional to simply its ability to twist that substrate in the product. So that's going to define how fast it can go. And that's going to be proportional to basically Vmax, right? That's the maximum rate at which it can go. It's also going to be proportional to the affinity of the enzyme for the substrate, right? How badly does that enzyme want to find substrate? And so these two terms, Km, the affinity, effectively the, affi measure, the affinity of the enzyme for substrate, and the catalytic capacity of the enzyme, those two terms are going to be described by Vmax and Km.
breaks down into products. Into products. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to make that generalization. The higher the affinity of the high, the lower the KM. That is. In the products. By definition, by definition, the rate of K2 will affect the KM, right? But because it is so much slower than the breakdown of enzyme back into substrate, it's like you're adding a, a thousand plus one. You know what I mean? Like, Let's say for a particular reaction, and we just drop that. Okay, so the question is about the initial velocity again, why we refer to that V naught as an initial velocity. It just gets back to that point again. It's, it's, so when we derive KM and Vmax in the lab, you know, we have to, these are things we have to experimentally measure, right? And what you're going to see uh, for a particular amount of enzyme and a particular amount of substrate, the reaction is going to go at a particular rate. But after 10 minutes, it's going to start slowing down. It's not because the enzyme isn't as good anymore. It's because the enzyme has been converting substrates into products. And as a result, you're messing with, you haven't changed the enzyme. The properties of the enzymes are identical. But it looks like the enzyme is starting to not be so good anymore. It has nothing to do with the enzyme. It's the, it's the, it's the depleted substrate. So we always measure like in the first minute. We measure where, we measure where, We measure where, sorry, this is the wrong graph. If you measure it over time, so this is not V naught anymore, this is just V, okay? And this is at a defined substrate concentration and a defined amount of enzyme. It's going to do this because this is where the rea this is where um, sorry it's going to do sorry 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 it's going to do this right so it's going to start out at 50 micromoles per minute 
and it's eventually going to tail off to zero. So what we care about is this, right? So we call that V naught. So what you can do is you can do this reaction at various substrate concentrations. You're going to see that this goes up and up and up until you get to 100. And then it never goes above 100 because you're, you're adding, now you're just pointing in extra that it can't handle. So is KM a measure of affinity? The answer is kind of yes. By definition, no, but pragmatically, yes. Uh, what it always is, and this is always correct, it's a constant that describes the dependence of the reaction on the substrate concentration. Okay? So it's similar in concept to affinity. It is the substrate concentration at which V0 is, is V max over 2. Okay? The substrate concentration you need to get the initial velocity to half the maximal velocity is the cam. So what you're going to find is that some enzymes have very high cams. That means you need a lot of substrate to get the reaction up to half Vmax. And some enzymes have very low cams. You don't need much substrate, and it's already flying along. So it's kind of a relationship between amount of substrate and, and the ability of the enzyme to catalyze. So this gets back a little bit to what I was talking about with respect to these kind of different terms to describe uh, reactions. Vmax, it's a description of the maximum velocity a reaction can go for a particular amount of enzyme. To describe the rate of an enzyme regardless of enzyme concentration, we define a new term, kcat. Uh, in that case, Vmax equals kcat times the concentration of enzyme. Okay? We talked about how uh, the maximal velocity chemical reaction can proceed is proportional to the concentration of the enzyme and the rate limiting step. We talked about the rate limiting step for most enzymatic reactions to be K2. Uh, since that's the rate limiting step, then for the, this particular reaction, Vmax equals the velocity of the reaction is just proportional to K2 times the enzyme concentration at saturating concentration. At saturation, you just want to remove the substrate concentration out of the equation. You've, you've given it all the substrate it can handle. Basically, the enzyme is always filled with substrate. And then the question is just basically, how fast can it go? So this kcat term, kcat, is basically the maximum speed uh, of the enzyme itself, which is going to be effectively, for most enzymes, K2, because we talked about how that's the rate limiting step. Okay? Vmax is, there's, the more enzyme you put in the reaction, the faster the reaction is going to go, right? But the rate, the actual physical rate per enzyme of the enzyme is this term kcat, which is basically another description of, of K2. Since K2, we talked about this already, I already asked this question, since the substrate's already bound at the state at the stage of this rate limiting step, the breakdown of ES into E plus P, into e plus P is a first order reaction, right? There's no binding the substrate. By definition, it has already bound the substrate. Okay, so it's a first order rate constant and it has units of per second. 
So how do we describe the total efficiency of an enzyme? Some enzymes don't need much substrate at all. And this is kind of what I was just saying a couple slides ago. They have a very low KM. That is, a very low concentration of substrate is needed to get up to half Vmax. But once they're bound substrate, they kind of suck. They're not very good at not, they're very bad at converting that substrate into product. So they have, they want to grab substrate, but they can't convert it. Other enzymes have a high substrate concentration dependence. They're very meh about binding substrate. They don't really have high affinity for substrate. But once they bind the substrate, they're really good at converting it into product. Okay? So how do you describe the efficiency, the total efficiency of an enzyme? So the total efficiency of an enzyme is going to be related to both those parameters, right? Uh, so we use this term kcat over km, which is also called the specificity constant, to describe the real total efficiency of an enzyme. The best enzyme you could, you could get would be the one that's wicked fast at converting substrate into product once substrate's bound. It also has a really high affinity for substrate. Right? That would be a very fast enzyme. It really, it's really good at binding. I'm really, really good at grabbing exams. And once I grab it, I'm really, really good at marking it. And so that would describe a very fast enzyme. A slow enzyme could be slow because I'm lousy at marking or because I don't really want to grab the next exam. You know? So the units, so since kcat is a first order rate constant with units of per second, that's s to the minus 1. Km has the same unit as substrate concentration, which is molar. So it's per seconds per molar. That's the units of the specificity constant. And there's kind of an upper limit to this number. There is a maximum specificity constant you can get. And this is the maximum rate at which E and S can possibly come together by diffusion. Right? At some point, diffusion just doesn't allow for things to come up together any faster than they possibly can. And that number is on the order of 10 to the 8 times or to 10 to the 9 per second per minute. Enzymes literally cannot, be go, cannot go faster than this. All right? But there are some enzymes that get that fast. Okay? So these, these are examples of enzymes for which the kcat over cam is close to the diffusion controlled limit. So we've got enzymes that are up, in or, up or around 10 to the 8 to 10 to the 9. However, they get there via different ways. They don't necessarily all have super fast kcats or super low KMs. So for example, uh, catalase has a crazy high kcat, 4 times 10 to the minus 7, sorry, 4 times 10 to the 7, but not so high a KM. So it actually doesn't have very high affinity for uh, the substrate. But when it binds the substrate, wow, it converts it crazy fast. On the other hand, you've got ones that have very, very low KM. So this one, fumarase, 5 times 10 to the minus 6, that's a very low KM. So it's very, very good at grabbing the substrate. But once it grabs the substrate, it's not as good at converting it as, say, catalase. Okay, so there's different ways to get there. Did I say? Yeah. Uh, if K2 is first order, does that mean K minus 2 is 
is secondary. Yes, it is. So that's the formation of E and P to go back to, I guess, ES or EP, the formation of the enzyme product complex. Yes, so that would be second order. It would be proportional to the affinity for, of E for P as well as uh, the amount of P. Is the upper limit for def uh, uh, is the upper limit temperature dependent? That's a good question. Uh, without looking it up, my guess I don't know. I guess maybe the right question is then: Is diffusion temperature dependent? It might be. Yeah, I guess it would be. Right? You're going to have basically things going diffusing more slowly at, as you get closer to zero in water. So yeah. So there's more than one way to get to this kind of catalytic perfection. How else can we describe Michaelis-Menten kinetics? So this was the original equation that I drew out, drew out, put up on the, <laughs> made a PowerPoint slide of, uh, and we're just going to rearrange some terms. I'm going to, excuse me, I'm going to take the reciprocal of both of these. I'm going to take change v naught into one over v naught, and I'm going to flip this side of the equation too, and then I'm going to break this down into two different into various terms, right? So I've got, yikes. So I've got 1 over v naught equals, uh, let me see if I've got this right. Uh, so I've got, goodness gracious, something, my PowerPoint messed this up somehow. Um, Km times 1, oh, Sorry, Km over Vmax times 1 over S plus 1 over Vmax. Okay, so I've basically taken the same equation and broken it down into a different form of writing it. Well, if you look at this, this now has the formula of a slope of a straight line, right? This is basically y equals mx plus b. Okay? And so people use this version of Michaelis-Menten to plot the, so it's a little bit better written out here. Uh, 1 over v naught equals v, cam over v max times 1 over s plus uh, 1 over v max. Okay? And what you get is basically this equation for a straight line where the slope is cam over v max. Um, the x intercept is 1 over the cam. The y intercept is 1 over v max. Okay? And your axes here are 1 over s and 1 over v naught. And we call this a Lineweaver-Burke plot. Okay. And what we're going to talk about next class is how messing with kinetic reactions by putting in things like inhibitors is going to mess with how the Lineweaver-Burke plot looks. It's going to basically, you're going to be able to tell when you add a molecule that inhibits an enzyme via one of several different ways, you're going to be able to tell how that molecule inhibits the enzyme by seeing how the trace of this line changes in the presence of that inhibitor. You can also use that kind of plot to get at some predictions as to CAM or VMAX. So you've got a data from an enzyme experiment, you plot it out, you conclude that the VMAX is 0.02 seconds per mole, the x-intercept is minus 2.5 millimolar, what's 
And then you should be able to calculate the KM from that using your equations for using basically going back to, to this equation and understanding what's the x-intercept, what's the y-intersect, what's the slope, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll give that a go next class. All right.